0: We are in chapter 4 today, so you can turn there. Um, and if you don't have a Bible in your hands, there are journals. Those are free for you to use and write in. So grab a journal. We will project the verse, but better to have it in front of you. We'll be in chapter 4. Um, and as you turn in there, uh, let me introduce what we're going to talk about. Uh, every people group pretty much in the world has historical heroes, or what we might call founding fathers. Uh, the founding fathers of the United States are legendary and incredible men like George Washington and John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, um, and others. They, and they did something remarkable. They boldly crafted a new form of government, and that form has endured for 250 years. Uh, it's remarkable. And, in our country, uh, we often look to the Founding Fathers to help understand the values and the, spe- the specifics of our governing documents. Um, we hold their opinions and their examples as somewhat authoritative uh, in our country, and not without reason. Um, you might have uh, different favorites. My favorite of the Founding Fathers is actually John Adams. Um, he, uh, I think, is just a remarkable man. I thoroughly enjoyed David McCullough's biography. Uh, John Adams' clarity of thought and his wisdom, his tenacity, going through many trials, uh, his New England ways, he was definitely a New Englander, uh, make for great reading. And he has lots of great quotes. So here's one quote from John Adams, um, among many. The preservation of liberty depends upon the intellectual and moral character of the people. As long as knowledge and virtue are diffused generally among the body of a nation, it is impossible they should be enslaved. So, great quote and you can find uh, lots of quotes like that by John Adams. Um, I think he's probably the most significant founding father, but I won't go off and talk about that too much. All that just to say, founding fathers are important, and we look to them. We look to them to get an idea. What are the key principles? What are, what are the ways to understand the, our country and how it's uh, formed? Well, today, the Apostle Paul is going to do just that. He's going to cite the ultimate founding father uh, for the people of God, And really the whole world, according to the biblical account and the historical account as well. He's going to cite the example of Abraham. Just like we might cite John Adams. And he's going to do that to clarify a key principle established by that founding father. Um, He's going to look to establish this truth we've been looking at and learning from chapter 3. But in chapter 4, he's going to look to Abraham to establish and affirm the truth that righteousness before God has always been... By grace, through faith alone, apart from works. It's been the plan all along. And that's the title of the message. So let's pray. And then what we'll do is read sections of it, and I'll talk about it. We'll just work our way right through the whole passage. But let's pray and ask God for help. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these truths that we see here. We thank you for Abraham and what you did in his life. And we thank you for how this is instructive for us. I pray right now as we examine. Romans 4, would you give us ears to hear? Would you help me, Lord, to teach well? And I pray through this, Lord, that we could encounter this amazing truth that's here. And Lord, this truth is a life-changing truth. We need it. Lord, we often stray from it, even day by day, even moment by moment. So we pray for encouragement and correction and exhortation and empowerment. And Lord, we ask for those among us that don't yet uh, understand or have not yet received this truth from themselves, will you speak to them? Will they know that this is from you, not me or us, but ultimately from the God of the universe, the, the truth teller? We thank you, Lord. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So chapter four, starting in verse one, reading just the first eight verses, says, what then should we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I just want to dig into this passage, this section of the passage, and just look at this idea of being counted righteous or being justified for Abraham, our forefather. Paul has been in chapter 3, as we've seen, mounting up evidence that the law, that the, the, the commands of God in the Old Testament, the commands of God throughout the whole Bible, New Testament included, um, do not lead to righteousness. They actually lead to an awareness of unrighteousness and condemnation. And then in the end of chapter 3, we've learned that righteousness comes through Christ alone, through his life and his death, through his offering of himself on the cross, his His propitiation, his putting away of just wrath. And it's through offering himself and through simple faith in him, receiving that sacrifice, that we are made right with God. We are put in the right. We are counted righteous with God. And it's only through that. That's what we've seen so far. And now, Paul wants to address concerns. Concerns about this idea. Concerns that maybe this is a novel idea. This is a new thing that Paul's introduced or or a new thing that some people came up with. And maybe we think the same. Maybe we think this is a novel idea. This is modern man thinking through these things and inventing a way to kind of deal with our inherent sinfulness and our failures. Now, novel ideas can be good, but they can also be dangerous, right, and destructive. Uh, I think the 20th century is, is evidence for where novel ideas can go wrong and the destruction they can bring. So we should be careful with new ideas, novel ideas. And so Paul is going to point back in time, way back in time, to the founding father. And he's going to illustrate through his life very clearly through this founding fathers that justification has always been by grace alone through faith alone. He speaks of Abraham as our forefather according to the flesh he calls him. And he means specifically that he's the forefather biologically of the Jewish people. But he's going to, as he goes through this passage, going to say, well, he's more than a biological forefather. He's a spiritual forefather. He's the ultimate forefather. And so he introduces him as the forefather that they should listen to. And he asks the questions, was Abraham justified by his works or by faith? Let's look at Abraham. How did it work for him? And he says if he was justified by works, certainly he could boast. He's been talking about boasting and how boasting gets removed by justification by grace through faith. So if Abraham could be justified by works, he had something to boast about. But then he says, but not before God. That's interesting that he says that. But not before God. But you would think, well, if he could justify himself by works, he could boast before God, couldn't he? What Paul's saying is that no, this is not God's system. It doesn't work in the first place. And secondly, it's not God's system. It does not please God to boast in our works and what we can earn before God. It is not God's way. It's not God's plan. Justification by grace through faith has been God's plan all along. And so he asks the question about Abraham and looks at his life and says, what does the scripture say? And his audience probably would have known the scriptures I've known what it said, but we want to look back at some of the verses in Genesis. So in Genesis 15, it it describes this encounter that Abraham has with God. And that's what Paul's referencing. So uh, Genesis 15, 1 through 6, I'll just read it. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he, speaking of God, counted it to him as righteousness. There it is. Genesis 15. This actual story that Paul is referencing. That the Lord will count, he counted, did count to Abraham through his faith, counted him righteous. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteous. The word counted is used. That's important to understand that word. Counted means um, to consider something. It, is, uh, it speaks of how you reason and think it out. It's your outlook. It's your logic. It's your weighing of something. And so it's saying God weighs this, considers this, regards this, thinks this, concludes this. He counts Abraham. He concludes, he thinks, he regards Abraham as righteous. That's what's being said here. Now, the counting can happen in different ways. Paul goes back to that as he makes his way through this section. He speaks of the counting uh, as wages. Not to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So, there's a sort of counting that where you earn things, and that's understood, right? If you have a job. Uh, and you work so many hours. Your hours are counted as worth something financially. And then you're compensated. You're given your due. And that's how it works with works. But he says this is not how it works. It, uh, not, not to the one who works. His wages are not counted as a gift. But as his due. And to the one who does not work. To the one who does not work. That's what he's saying of Abraham. That's what he's saying about how righteousness works. To the one who does not work. It's it's apart from works. But believes in him. Who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So there's a counting in God's economy. That counts righteousness to the one who does not work. But believes, and receives. It's a different sort of counting. That's what's going on here. That's what, that's what Paul's explaining. That's what happened with Abraham. Abraham had not worked and earned righteousness. He was not the initiator of that conversation. He's not the one who came up with the promise. God did. God promised to Abraham to make his descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. So, innumerable. To... Make him an inheritor, really heir of the world, we're going to see Paul calls it. Uh, who, and, and he's a man who had no children and was not able to produce children. He and his wife were barren. And God promises to make him an heir of a countless number. And Abraham believed God. He hadn't done anything. He received what God had promised and what God was going to do without doing anything. And God counted it to him. He considered him righteous. God said, this one who believes in me simply without works is the one I count as righteous. So important. And illustrated, of course, by Abraham, the forefather. And then Paul cites another forefather, King David. King David says the same thing, more or less, in Psalm 32. This blessing... This is a blessing to be counted righteous apart from works. It's a blessing. It's an amazing blessing because it's something that's not earned. It's an amazing blessing because it's desperately needed. It's a blessing we need. And without this path, without this way, we are all sunk, right? That's what Romans 1-3 through has taught us. The law only makes it clear... How desperate we are. How far we fall short of the good and righteous standard of God. And so this is a blessing that is one we need. And so David says, blessed is the one. Amazingly blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Counts no iniquity. Counts righteousness is the implication here. And so Paul's citing David in this truth. And so this blessing has been needed since the dawn of humankind, since the fall of Adam and Eve, since the days of King David and before, since the days of Abraham himself, and back to the very beginning. It has been God's plan all along to grant this blessing of forgiveness and righteousness as a gift given and received by faith. There is no other plan. It has been God's plan all along. This isn't plan B. God didn't think, well, if they had just got it right, we'll go with that. Or somehow I can intervene and fix things some other way. No, this has been plan A. This has been plan, the plan all along, and has been obvious since the fall itself. It is God's plan. It's how God doesn't does it. This isn't a contingency plan. This isn't something that's secondary. This is so important to get. Because let me tell you what happens in all of our minds and hearts. We realize, yeah, I come in this way. I come into Christianity. I come into the family this way through grace alone, through faith alone. But then we start to let the old ways creep back in. And we think, well, there's, a, there's another plan actually. That was just to get me in. Now we're back to plan A. And plan A was righteousness through my works. And so now I'm going to exist as a Christian righteous through my works. Now works are important and righteousness, living out the law is important and empowered by the Spirit. We talked about that. But that's not to be our ground or our orientation. The plan all along is righteousness by grace alone through faith alone. So we start that way. We continue that way. We finish that way. It's important to see what's going on here and how Paul is saying, look, this is how it worked with the forefather. This is how it's worked all along. Don't try to implement another plan. This is God's plan. So he continues in this argument because there's people who, who would have questions. And and so in verse nine, he says, Is this blessing then only for the uncircumcised or also for the, is only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after. The faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And so Paul's addressing the question about the people of God in the Old Testament. Circumcision was the mark of the covenant. It was the sign of being in covenant with God under the Old Covenant. It was an essential mark of that covenant as well. Essential. To be in that covenant, you, you were to be as a man marked that way. And so it's an important topic to, to address. It's not that Paul has some people that are being unreasonable. It's reasonable, understanding the history of the old covenant people of God. And so he points out, he uses Abraham's life to, to illustrate. When did it happen? When did God count him as righteous? Was it after he got circumcised or before? Because that's important. Because if you understand this is an essential mark of belonging to the people of God in the Old Testament. By the way, the New Testament essential mark is baptism in water. Um, another topic, just to store that away, future reference. Old Testament, it's, it's through circumcision. And so, it's, so if it's an essential mark, then we might think that, well, if we want to be in right relationship with God, we need to get circumcised first and then believe him or receive the, this righteousness he, he offers. And so when did it happen? Well, chapter 15, we just read. When was Abraham circumcised? Chapter 17 of Genesis. It says this, When Abram was 90 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. And said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision was not the basis for Abraham's righteousness, but the expression of it. As Paul says in verse 11, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. While he was still uncircumcised. He was counted righteous when he was uncircumcised. So circumcision does not make you righteous before God. It is for the Old Testament people of God, the expression of being counted righteous already through faith. And so Abraham is the forefather of all who will believe like he did without being circumcised. And the forefather of all those who believe like he did and are circumcised. The essential thing needed in God's people is faith in the God who counts us righteous. And so Abraham is a very significant spiritual father because of this. Because he did this and lived it and demonstrates it to us all. And it's a terrible, terrible error to understand the scriptures and the storyline of the Bible otherwise. It's a terrible error to understand the old covenant or the new covenant as a covenant of works. A covenant where you meet conditions to satisfy God and be counted righteous. Instead of being counted righteous as a gift through faith alone, apart from works. Don't make this terrible theological error. Don't misunderstand your Bible. Don't misunderstand, more importantly, ultimately, God. Don't misunderstand yourself. It's ridiculous to to think there's another way. If you know yourself honestly. Don't live in condemnation and, and condemning yourself and condemning others. Don't live in misery and foolishness. Don't insult God by functionally living according to another principle. It has been God's plan all along. So stop thinking otherwise. Stop living otherwise. Stop feeling otherwise. Stop treating others otherwise. Stop it. Live by this truth. Righteousness is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And this has been the plan all along. It's the plan for you. It's the plan for everybody. All those who would receive through faith this righteousness. Paul goes on, verse 13. He says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul tells us the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be heir of the world. Heir of the world. That's interesting. It says it there. It actually never says that quite like that in the Old Testament anywhere. You'll never find heir of the world describing... Abraham. So why does Paul say that? Well, I think if we think about what we've seen already, we could understand how it works because Abraham didn't have any children. And didn't see any ability in himself to have children. He and his wife were barren. God promised that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars of the sky. So, innumerable. There's billions of billions of billions of stars and It's also compared to the sand on the seashore. The idea is not to figure out what the number actually is. It's to say it's way beyond counting. And so he has descendants that are beyond counting. He is to be the spiritual father of innumerable descendants. From all nations actually, right? Because Abraham, the promise is that God would bless him. And through him bless all nations. All people groups. All people throughout the whole globe. Throughout all of history. Are going to be, are being blessed by... Abraham and his faith and, and the, the covenant of grace, this amazing truth that we're talking about, is there for all peoples. For there to be innumerable heirs, descendants throughout the whole globe, throughout whole time. And when we're all done with this, we'll, look and we'll be part of that crowd and they'll be innumerable. They'll just, if we stand together, they'll just go on and on beyond what sight can see. That's the promise. And we know that, that such as, as are there through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, on the final day will inherit the renewed earth, the new earth, uh, the ultimate, when Christ finishes all things in and through his church, when he returns, he will judge the living and the dead, and those who are his through, by grace, through faith alone, will inherit a new, recreated universe. And so that's why Paul says Abraham is heir of the world, because he is the spiritual father of this innumerable mass of people who are the heirs of the new world. And so all this comes to Abram by faith, by grace through faith. And and Paul says um, in verse 14, for it is it is If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. And so Abraham is the father of many nations through this arrangement by grace, through faith. And he says, for if the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, for if it is the adherence of the law, sorry, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. In other words, if you can get there by the law, you don't get there. That's what he's saying. For the law, what does the law do? The law doesn't get you there. The law brings wrath. Now we know the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. We've talked about this. There's nothing wrong, of course. It's glorious. The law is good and glorious. God deserves our, our love. He deserves our full passion and affections and energy and our, all of our thoughts and all of our actions. He's so good and glorious. He deserves all that. Of course we should love him like that. That's good and right. And of course we should love our neighbors as ourselves. We should really treat others in the same regard and same value as we value ourselves. We should never diminish from that. We should never mistreat another person. We should hold them in honor and love as we would ourselves. Of course that's right. But there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But why does the law bring wrath? Because of us. The law just points out the reality of our brokenness and of God's justice towards us. His holy justice which is his holy wrath. Not a capricious wrath. He doesn't fly off the handle. He's amazingly patient. He's ever doing good in our lives. He's hoping that the kindness his kindness will lead us to repentance. So his wrath is a settled holy justice. But the law brings wrath. And then he says but where there is no law there is no transgression. This is not saying that there is, this happens somewhere by the way. It doesn't. Wherever the law is, it brings wrath, and the law has always been around. So not only is it the Ten Commandments, but it's the the thousand plus commandments in the New Testament. And it's also the law written on the heart of of all humanity. He talks about that in Romans earlier. Everybody has on their heart the law of God written, because we're made in the image of God. And Adam and Eve were called to believe and trust and obey God and we all we all know that so the law it's not that the law doesn't exist it does but hypothetically if there weren't law it wouldn't do the work of pointing out that we're sinful that we're falling short but the good the goodness of the law comes in and and addresses our brokenness and so if this promise of being heir of the world is going to function through the law we're we're all sunk everyone is sunk it's not going to happen It can't rely on the law. It can't. It has to be another way. There is no no way to to be right with God and inherit these promises through the law. Only by grace. Only through faith. And it's illustrated in the life of Abraham who is this amazing receiver of an amazing promise and this promise that, that was given in his day and points to the end of days. So the whole plan... The whole plan is a plan dependent on grace through faith. This has been God's plan all along. And I'm sorry to repeat myself, but I'm not sorry. Because we need to get it. And we wander from this. And we import other plans. Thinking somehow we're doing something right. And we're messing with God's eternal plan. Instead of Resting and relying and finding life and joy and zeal for love and holiness from this amazing plan of grace through faith. Abraham received this promise by grace through faith. He hadn't earned it. Have you ever had an experience in life where you've received some sort of promise that you haven't earned? I have. Um, I think I one many examples, but one when I was in college. Uh, I went to college with the promise, the hope, the expectation that I would be able to get an engineering job, get, a good engineering, uh, get an engineering degree and get a good engineering job. That was the promise before me, an uh, expectation, a reasonable promise, because usually people who go through school and pass get jobs. And so I lived with that promise in mind, and that drove me in college. But I had become a Christian right before college, and in the summer I wanted to be part of a discipleship program for Christians to grow. And we were involved with the Navigators. And so I decided to be a part of this program and take a job, um, actually, at at a pickle factory. That's another story I won't get into. But uh, pickle factory, and then I was a lifeguard too. Uh, And so I didn't make as much money as I could have if I had been like an engineering intern or done another job, other jobs I could make better money. And so um, I didn't make a whole lot. And our arrangement in our family was a wonderful arrangement. It worked this way. Uh, My parents paid for room and board for college, and we had to pay for tuition and books and, and supplies. And it was a good deal, too, because back in those days, uh, tuition was somewhat affordable. It was like five to 10000 equivalent of today, believe it or not, uh, not fifty to $100,000. So anyhow, that was the arrangement. But I, I came up short that summer. And I was resigned, like, OK, the promise is off. I don't, I can't, I won't be able to pay for school. And we, we had made this arrangement. Um, and so I'm going to have to take at least a semester off to earn more money and so forth. And I was resigned to that. And, and yet my gracious parents said, no, don't worry about it. We'll cover the semester. We want you to keep on going. And so the promise of, of school uh, was not postponed. It was continued through their graciousness. The promise came as a gift, not through my earning. Well, that's what's going on here. This amazing promise to Abraham and to us is realized as a gift, a pure gift to be received by faith. And there's no other arrangement that would work. Slightly different than me earning money for school. We can never earn righteousness. We can never earn the promise. It must be given as a gift. It's essential in the Christian life. To understand righteousness is by grace through faith alone. And that's been the plan all along. Well he continues to talk about Abraham here. And the next he, in verse 17 he goes on To speak of uh, the nature of justification and of Abraham's uh, situation as being incredible. He turns to the nature of Abraham's faith in light of the promise. That God, uh, he believes, Abraham believes God, who gives life to the dead, he says in verse 17. And calls into existence the things that do not exist. The object of our faith is, is, of course, very important. It's not faith alone in nothing or whatever. It's faith alone in Christ alone. It's in God. And so Abraham's, the, the objective of Abraham's faith was God. And it describes God as one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And this is who God is, by the way. This has always been who God is. It will always be who God is. We all live in this amazing reality that used to not exist. The universe and all reality is here because God called something that didn't exist into existence. And and the more we know about the universe, the more we see how miraculous it is. Everything about it, everything about the universe, even down to the simplest math, one plus one equals two, is a miracle. It's amazing. It's a glorious truth. Every aspect of creation is a glorious truth. That God has established and there's infinite amount of things that he's made. He's called them all into existence. He's the one who made the universe and made all things. He's the God who does this. He's the God who gives life to the dead. Where there is no life, he gives life. He makes humans in his image where there weren't humans. This is who he is. This is who he's always been. And and, and it's, it's a necessary ground for the universe, by the way, the You'll never have enough multiverses to, to create the universe. It's far beyond that in, in its depth of miraculousness and possibility. So he's the God of the impossible. He's a, a God who does the impossible with no problem at all. He speaks a word and the impossible becomes possible. This is who he is. And so Abraham understood this. Paul wants to highlight the object of his faith. It isn't just simply faith in an idea. It's faith in the God of the impossible. And Abraham's situation at the time was was not just like a neutral situation where he just needed to have a little more faith. He had opposite reasons for faith. He was a shriveled up old man. Like a hundred years old. His wife was pushing that age too. They had never had children. They had been barren their, their whole marriage, their whole life. And yet God says you're going to have more descendants than the stars of the sky. And why would Abraham believe that? Because the God of the impossible said it. The God who gives life where there's death. The God who calls into existence things that are not said it. And Abraham knew enough about God to know this is who he is. It was the quality of who God is that that gave him the power of faith. It says that he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. Why? Because he was just such an incredible man and we just all need to be faith warriors like him? No. Because of God. God had revealed himself to Abraham and he saw God for who he is. And he believed God. That's why he didn't waver. He didn't look at the obstacles, he didn't look at his age, he didn't look at his wife's age. Now, he struggled later, you can read the story, but he came back and he held firm that the God of the impossible said this, therefore I believe him. He looked to God, he believed God. And and Paul's highlighting this because the background here is us being counted righteous. That's an impossibility apart from some other solution in ourselves, in and of ourselves. That's an impossibility. It's ridiculous. It makes no sense. It's contrary to what we would understand as justice. It's contrary to how we understand things to work. It's impossible to be righteous in God. And Yet he's the God of the impossible. He's the God who gives life to the dead. He's the God who took on flesh as Jesus and fulfilled the righteousness we know we ought to live. He lived a fully righteous life full of faithfulness to his Father, full of love to others. He fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled the law in his heart and in his actions in all that he did to the point of the cross, going to the cross, dying in our place on the cross. He himself in his infinite worth and glory Offered himself up in our place. Paid for our sins. Satisfied God's righteous demands. And then rose again on the third day. Victorious over sin and death. Showing and proving that he had done the impossible. He had overcome sin and death. And now through simple faith. Simply receiving that work. God does the impossible in us. We are counted righteous in Christ. Just as as it was miraculous and amazing that that Abram would believe. But it was because of who God is. It is the same for us. And there are some key lessons here just to recognize. There were many reasons in Abraham's life to not believe God. There were things in his life. There were good, good things that didn't exist. And there were bad things that did exist. There was death. There were dead things there. Not things of life. His body was good as dead, it says. And so we always will have challenges to faith in this world. We live in a broken world. There are dead things. There are dying things. There are things that don't yet exist. The new heavens and the new earth don't exist yet. And we see in this world, we see the kingdom has come already, but not yet. It's still a broken world. There's dead things around us. There's places where there isn't life. And things don't exist yet. Those things can always influence us to say, Ah, it it ain't happening. But the key in that is to not look at the things that ain't happening. But to look at the God of the impossible. Who has done the impossible and will do the impossible. Again and again, ultimately in reconciling all things and renewing all of creation. And so we set our eyes on him, not ourselves, not our deadness, not our weakness, but on him, the promise keeper. That's how we deal with unbelief. I think of it like driving along the highway. If you set your sight on where you're going, I have to look about 200 yards ahead. Works for me. I stay straight. When I start looking, even at just the lines next to me. Have you ever done that? Driving along, you feel good, and you start looking at the lines like, oh no, no. Oh, no, I can't stay in the lines anymore. That's what happens to me. But if I keep my eyes straight ahead, I drive straight. If I look to the side, if I look at that accident over there or that car over here, I start swerving. That's what the Christian life is like. We are to set our eyes not on our circumstances, our challenges, but on the God who fulfills his promises, the God of the impossible. Finally, and more briefly, Paul concludes saying, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He's connecting this in ways we've been connecting it already as we've gone through. That this is not just for Abraham. This is for us. The reason we have this forefather in Scripture, we have his life recorded, is for us to realize the same things apply to us. And the same things are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He comes as the fulfiller. He comes as the Promise fulfiller. All these promises that were given to Abraham are fulfilled in and through Christ. He is the one who is the faithful one. The seed of Abraham. And through him, and through faith in him, there's an innumerable amount of heirs, both in the Old Testament, who looked forward to God, making all things right, and now since Christ, who look to Christ to make all things right and live in him. He is the fulfiller of all these things is the one who died for us. And through his life, his death, we are counted righteous. We are treated and regarded, considered, concluded as righteous in Jesus. The moment we receive it. This is amazing good news. This is God's plan all along. This is his only plan. This is the plan that we're to remember and to live in. We're to remind each other all the time of this plan, of this truth. And we're to share it with others because it's the only hope of the world. It's the only hope of the world. Law-keeping is good. But law-keeping will not realize this plan only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's just take a minute to reflect on this and pray if the band could come up. Uh, Take a moment to prepare for communion and to celebrate the, the wonder of the truth of Christ crucified.